Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm in Galatians chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A great way to start. All right. All right. I'm going to get a chance to talk to Allie Beth Stuckey. She's a at over at the blaze she's a host uh, at blaze media author of her new book you're not enough and that's okay escaping the toxic culture of self-love ali beth welcome to the show yes thanks so much for having me yeah you know great title just just to let you know right up front you had me at the title it's fantastic <laughs> well thank you i i i'm glad so i you know, one of the things that popped into my head is i would love to kind of get a biblical understanding of self-love because I think of a verse where it says, uh, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I go, well, I suppose loving yourself is a good thing, maybe because the Bible says it is and God loves us and we're lovable and we're the beloved. So uh, I know we can take it to a bad place though, can't we? Yes. So that's actually an argument that we address specifically in the book. There is an argument that's being made um, in some sector, uh, sections of the church that says, Uh, The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, therefore you have to love yourself before you can love other people. But that is actually not a right understanding of what Jesus is calling us to do. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about in that directive is not the kind of affectionate love that we typically mean today. He's not talking about self-esteem. He's not talking about self-confidence. He's not talking about any kind of particular feeling you have about yourself. He's talking about that innate self-interest that all of us have that insistence upon um, our own provision. We look to quench our own thirst. We uh, look to satisfy our own hunger. We look for our own protection and provision, no matter uh, how highly we think of ourselves that day, no matter what our feelings of ourselves are that day. And that is the kind of love that he's asking us to extend to our neighbor, not one that's based on feelings or circumstances at all, not one that's based on affection, but one that is based on a commitment to the interest of someone else in the same way that you are committed to your own interest. Ephesians 5 talks about no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And that, of course, is a directive from the husband or to the husband to loving his wife the same way that he loves himself. So Jesus is assuming, God is assuming that we are born with a kind of self-interest. And so we really don't have to spend any time as Christians wondering what we think about ourselves or what our feelings are or what self-esteem, what level of self-esteem we have. That's a secular gauge of how we're doing. How we gain confidence, how we look at ourselves is through God, through Christ. Who God is doesn't change. What he thinks of us through Christ doesn't change. So as Christians, our confidence comes from that, taking our eyes off of what we think of us and putting our eyes on God and what he has done for us. I bet that's a brilliant clarification. I already feel like I have my money's worth, and I want to run out and buy the book. 
<laughs> Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> all right. I want to ask you about your inspiration for all this. I mean, it started for you as a young girl when you wanted to be Britney Spears. Yes, that's true. That's what I started. I, I start off that way in the book, talking about how I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be a dancer. Of course, I don't have talent to meet that design. <laughs> And that's something that we all realize as young people at some point that some of the wild dreams that we had as kids, the capacity to be able to fulfill those dreams, we learned very early on that we're not enough for some of the things that we want. And rather than wallowing in self-pity or trying to compensate for that with some crazy level of self-confidence, we should actually realize that we are insufficient. We are not enough. God made us that way. And our strength and our purpose and our wisdom and our joy and our fulfillment comes from him, not what we can do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about some of the myths that are just all over the the uh, culture today. And the, the myth that you are enough uh, and you determine your truth. I'd love for you to touch on those two just to get um, those started. Yes. So I argue in the book that you are enough is really the fundamental lie that we're told both sometimes in and outside of the church, particularly in women's ministries, that um, you are sufficient. You're enough for your own happiness, confidence, fulfillment, all of those things. And it comes, I think, from a well-intentioned place. People struggle with insecurity. They struggle with self-loathing. So when we hear that we're enough, it, it sounds like, you know, balm for the weary heart. It sounds like a righteous encouragement. The problem is when we are dependent on our own sufficiency or our own enoughness, and then we inevitably fail, we inevitably come up short, we inevitably realize that we are not enough for ourselves and the people around us, we end up more disappointed and more devastated than we were before. And so the beauty of the gospel is, is that we don't have to be our enoughness, but Christ actually became our sufficiency. He became our enoughness. He became our righteousness. All the good that we have um, belongs to him. The Bible says, I have no good apart from you. And so that is actually a relief that we aren't trying to prove our enoughness or prove our sufficiency to ourselves or anyone else because God has become that. His power is perfected in our weakness, not in our sufficiency. His grace is sufficient for us, not our strength. And so that is the first lie that you are enough. It ends to a dead end of disappointment as I've experienced in my own life. And through that lie, that belief that we're basically the center of our universe, basically the belief that we are our own God, that we determine our own happiness and morality and path and purpose. It also leads to this lie that you determine your own truth. A lot of people listening have probably heard these terms. Well, that's my truth, and that's your truth. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. And the problem is when we believe that we're enough, when we believe that essentially we are our own gods and we start determining uh, truth, when we start determining morality, we end up justifying all kinds of immorality in the name of doing what we want to do, in the name of things like autonomy or authenticity. We justify horrific things like um, abortion in the name of choice and empowerment, simply because we are willing to sacrifice anything on the altar of self-love and what I call trendy narcissism. Um, And so this is where that path leads us. It leads to not just um, spiritual problems and personal problems, but it has an impact on society at large. And so that's why I think it's so important for us 
to depend on God for the things that we are trying and failing to find inside of ourselves, to realize that he determines truth. We don't have that obligation and burden to carry and that we can go to him and his word for our source of wisdom. We don't have to make up our own set of morality or our own truth. Allie Beth, you've really thought through this really well. How did uh, this become so clear to you? Well, thank you. It's something that I have been thinking about for a long time. If anyone listening to this has written a book, they know that it's a long process. Just this book has been about a two-year-long process, but even before that, it was probably half a year or a year before that that I started thinking about the subject that I would eventually start writing the book on. So this has been about three years in the making, um, and the reason why I started to write about it and to think about it and to talk about it on my podcast is because I started getting so many messages and emails from women who listen to my podcast. We talk about theology, we talk about politics and culture, and this idea, this uh, obsession with self-love, really, it, it crosses into all of those categories. And so people just started to ask me to break it down that, hey, you know, self-love sounds good. You are enough sounds good. You're perfect the way you are sounds good. And hey, it makes me feel good. And hey, a lot of these self-love gurus have helped me lose weight, achieve my goals, get my dream job, but something still isn't right. I'm still not satisfied. So why is it? That's what I keep hearing over and over again. I have been reading self-love books. I've been reading self-help books. I have been following self-empowerment influencers on Instagram for years. And why do I still hate myself? Why am I still unhappy? Why am I still so anxious? I just kept on getting those messages over and over again. And it's because of self-obsession. Self-obsession doesn't satisfy. It makes us even more unsatisfied. God didn't make us to be our own gods. God didn't make us to obsess over what we think of us because it changes every second. He created us to depend on him for our truth, for our purpose, for all the things that we're looking for inside of ourselves and just can't find. And so through my own experiences, through the experiences of other people and following a lot of the people who propagate this madness and seeing how, unfortunately, uh, behind their Instagram profiles, you typically find a lot of um, sadness themselves and a lot of hollowness um, in their own lives. And I just realized this is a good sounding message that is leading a lot of women astray. And I hope that I can just play a small part in offering a gospel-centered truth that is going to, that God will use to hopefully free a lot of women from what I think is the burden of the culture of self-love. Mm-hmm. Allie Beth Stuckey is my guest. She's host of The Blaze Media and author of her new book, uh, You're Not Enough, and that's okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. After a short break, we're going to be back with lots more. So glad to have Allie Beth Stuckey as my guest. She's written a book called uh, You're Not Enough, and that's okay. Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Uh, right before we went to break, Allie Beth, you were uh, talking about some of the myths that the uh, self-love industry has been feeding people. And really, a lot of them sound kind of nice. You're, you're enough, and, and you're perfect the way you are, and you're entitled to your dreams. And you can't love others until you love yourself. So let's keep processing through that because I find this very interesting. You've done your homework. 
Yes, definitely. So we just talked about the myth that you determine your own truth. The reality is, is that God determines truth. We don't have to carry that responsibility. We don't have to carry that burden. And if we try, it's going to crush us and it's going to crush the people around us. So it's actually good news that we don't determine our own truth. We also talk about in the book, uh, there's five myths. Another myth is that uh, you're perfect the way you are. Now, this is something that most of us know, and maybe we wouldn't even admit that we think this about ourselves. I think most people would probably say, of course, I don't think that I'm perfect the way I am. I know that I make mistakes. The problem is we are still reading this in a lot of books that are directed toward women and a lot of, on a lot of social media pages and blogs and podcasts and self-help resources that are directed toward women that say, sure, you mess up, but essentially you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to apologize for anything. You don't need to fix yourself in any way because any flaw that you might see in yourself is really just a quirk of your personality. Personality tests have actually played a huge part in kind of normalizing what God calls sin in the name of just being quirky. And I think that that is a detriment to women's sanctification in our pursuit of holiness as Christians. We know that we're not perfect the way we are. Actually, the Bible goes further than saying that you're imperfect. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are all dead in our sin apart from Christ and that we couldn't fix ourselves up. We couldn't say, yeah, I'm kind of imperfect, but I'll just change a little bit and hope that God accepts me. Thank goodness. No, we were dead in our sin and Christ had to make us alive by grace through faith. That same passage says, not of your own doing. This is a gift. And so we are not only not perfect the way that we are, we are dead in sin. And then when we become Christians, when God makes us alive through Christ, then he also sanctifies us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And of course, we through him try to sin less and less, but we know that we're not going to achieve perfection. And again, that's good news. Jesus became our perfection in the same way that we're not enough because Jesus became our sufficiency. And as 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says, he, his grace is sufficient for us. He has also become our perfection. He has reached the standard that we couldn't reach. So all of these platitudes, they sound liberating. They sound empowering. You're enough. You're perfect the way that you are. You determine your own truth. They really put a burden on women, on people that we just can't bear because we are trying to make ourselves all the things that God has already become for us through Christ. All right, Ali Beth, the next one uh, bugs me a little bit. In a good way, it bugs me in a good way, is that you're entitled to your dreams. And I, I'm always curious as to when people say that they've got dreams, I always go, well, that's cool that you have dreams, but it's nice to have wings, but where's your landing gear? How are you going to put this in action? What's your plan? Then the minute right. you ask them to tell you a plan, they kind of back off a little bit. Right, right. And that speaks to an attitude that unfortunately a lot of, I would say young people, this is probably more of a generational problem. A lot of young people have that whatever dream life we want, we are entitled to it. And um, this is how our life is going to turn out really no matter what choice we made. And I believed that myself. I believed that after I graduated from college that I would be able to do exactly what I wanted to do and get paid as, exactly as much as I wanted to get paid. And I think that there's no problem with having dreams, with having goals, and working to pursue them. The problem is that we aren't entitled to those things. They aren't guaranteed. And young people, I think, have to learn to work for the sake of working hard, to work for the sake of glorifying God. 
Um, we have to learn to appreciate deferred gratification, which is something that unfortunately is very foreign to a lot of young people, not all, but to a lot of young people. We've been taught that we only do a job that leads to our dream career or that is our dream career and that feels good to us. Same thing with relationships. You only get in relationships that feel good to you every moment. But that is not the model that Christianity shows us, that there is joy in the sacrifice. There is joy in the deferred gratification. We can work heartily as for the Lord and not for a man, whether or not we are in our dream job. And again, that is good news. Maybe, maybe your dreams will come true when you work for them. Maybe that is in God's will, but maybe it's not. And we shouldn't delay working joyfully and for the glory of God until we get the dreams that we think that we're entitled to. I love the fact that you're talking about the uh, importance of hard work. I, I just think that's a great reminder. Um, it's great to have dreams. Yes. It's great to have dreams, but it's also important to get up every day and treat what you're doing as an act of worship to God and just work hard. Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, our culture has two kinds of warped views of work. There is one view of work that is amoral. And this is more, I would say, if you're talking ideologically, more on the left-wing side of the ideological spectrum that would say there's nothing necessarily inherently good in work or inherently moral in work. And people really should just be able to do the job that they want to do. And if they don't want to work, then they should be taking taking care of. That is a more amoral view of work. But Christians know that work is not amoral. Work existed before sin entered the world, before the fall of man. Adam was tasked to take care of the earth, to name the animals. Work is good. It's part of the human spirit. The other end of the spectrum that is also wrong is idolizing work, being our entire identity, seeing it as everything we are. And the only goal in life is to reach a certain level in your career. That's also wrong. Uh, Work is not to be our idol, but it's also not to be cast aside as something that is bad. We are all called to productivity. Mm -hmm. Allie Beth, my uh, producer, Rebecca, has got a question for you now. Rebecca? I do. And I've been saying, you haven't heard it, but I've been saying amen to just about everything you said, Allie. I truly think it's like we're sisters that haven't met yet. I was thinking about how some of this this toxic messaging has crept into the church. I also wonder if it's acting as kind of a foil for an opposite extreme, which is the low opinion of many women might see themselves as not being enough and feeling depressed and like they're always failing. They're always on that performance wheel. And I wondered if you'd be able to speak to how we can see our sufficiency in Christ so that we don't fall into either of those two extremes. Yes, so that's such a good point. I do think, kind of as we were talking earlier, that there are a lot of good intentions behind some of these messages that you are enough and you can't love other people until you love yourself. I think it's a genuine reaction to a lot of the legalism that we saw both in the secular world and in parts of the evangelical church an emphasis on moralism and legalism uh, without relationship and without a right understanding of grace and the gospel. It was, and you know, people who grew up in youth group, you hear a lot of stories, bad stories of people's experiences with purity culture when there was really no gospel preached. It was only rules-based and people, they just didn't get it or they were either abused by it or they felt exploited by it. And so there is certainly Um, a resistance to a lot of the legalism, maybe some of the fire and brimstone um, 
seasons of the church that people are feeling now. Now, I don't necessarily think fire and brimstone is bad, but I'm trying to characterize how a lot of people feel and felt about certain seasons of the church that were focused too much on legalism and too much just on action without relationship and without talking about the gospel and why we do what we do, why we pursue holiness. So I think this kind of self-esteem movement is a reaction to that. The problem is it was a reaction in the wrong direction. It didn't just go too far in the wrong direction, in the you know opposite swing of the pendulum. It went in the wrong direction entirely. Instead of saying, okay, you know, God thinks that you, um, no matter what you do, even after you're, after you're a Christian, God thinks that you are a dirty, bad person, and there's nothing that you can ever do that's right. And if you disobey, there's no forgiveness or grace for you, and you have to meet all of these unrealistic standards. That was wrong, but it is just as wrong to say that you're perfect. God doesn't care what you do. God doesn't care about sin. Everything that you like about yourself, God likes about you too, no matter your behavior, no matter your choices, no matter your words. God doesn't care about any of that. He's just here to tell you how awesome you are and how enough you are. That's the completely wrong direction. All you're doing is creating another kind of idol. You are still focusing on a kind of performance. You're still focusing on a kind of self-idolatry. You're still encouraging people to think of what they think of themselves rather than rightly pointing them to what God has done for them through Christ. And so our feelings about ourselves are undulating. They are tumultuous. They are changing. They're either going to go to self-loathing because we can't, we just can't be good enough. We feel like we're not adequate or they're going to swing in the other direction to arrogance and to self-centeredness. Both sides of the pendulum are symptoms of self-obsession. What God calls us to is no form of self-obsession, but self-forgetfulness, self-sacrifice that says, I don't have to worry about what I think about me. I don't have to worry what other people think about me. I know who God is, and the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I can focus on him and what he's done for me and how he sees me as uh, now in him uh, a child of God. Allie Beth, we just have a minute or so left. When we have a me first mentality, it's gonna not usually not gonna end well, is it? No, it's not. It's not gonna end well for us personally, spiritually, it's <laughs> not gonna end well for society either. If you think about everyone walking around pretending like they are their own gods, determining their own definitions of truth, morality, and justice, you can see how that leads to chaos really quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty convinced. I think I'm gonna buy two copies now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You bet. Allie Bastucky has been my guest. Her book is You're Not Enough, and that's okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. After a short break, we'll be back with lots more. to Afternoons with Bill Arnold, that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. 
Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com slash survey. All right, this is a very special day for me. I get to have a chance to talk to my dear, dear friend, Kerry Humphreys Sr. He is here with me in studio. I first met Kerry when I was just a young lad, and he has been like a earthly father to me, and he has mentored me and cared about me and loved me and made sure after my stepfather died that I was one of those kids that didn't slip through the cracks. So we've been studying God's Word together for over 40 years, and we are uh, just uh, the dearest of friends, and I love him, and he has got a remarkable life story. I haven't had to listen to a lot of sermons that he's given me because he hasn't given me many sermons. He's just lived a life, and I've watched it, and I've modeled, tried to model my life after his. So it is with great uh, pleasure that I get a chance to uh, have him in studio and have a, a Words of the Wise segment. He's got another plan that he wants to talk about as well, because when you're a man like him, you never stop thinking of ways to expand the kingdom of God. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. It's uh, I've been here once before, I think, and uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. I appreciate those kind words, and you and I both know that uh, we never would have crossed paths except for the sovereignty of God orchestrating our lives. Yeah, amen. It's been a blessing for both of us. And I'll also tell listeners, uh, Kerry was the chairman of the board here at University of Northwestern for seven years. So you're very familiar with the University of Northwestern and everything about this place. Great, uh, great time in in my life. And uh, I was on the search committee when uh, we went out and found Brother Allen. Yeah. So when we talk about a person's life, we start usually with... Um, you you married your beautiful bride, Margot, when you were in your 20s. You raised three boys. You adopted uh, a little brother through the Big Brother Association, uh, Jim Hallberg, who is yes. like a fourth son. Yes, indeed. And then um, uh, he uh, tragically passed away um, when he was in his early 30s. Yeah, actually, late 20s, yeah, car yeah. accident. Yeah, and then uh, you have been involved in... Uh, ministries of all kinds, like prison ministry, which inspired me to go into prison ministry. All I did was observe what you were doing, and I thought, I want to be like him, because everything you do, I want to duplicate, just so you know. And so then you got involved in prison ministry, and then you, after a, a long career with Cargill, which is the largest privately held corporation in the world, you uh, retired and then spent the next year in the Ukraine. Tell our listeners about that. Yes, and and I should tell you, before I went to Ukraine, I taught in the business department here at Northwestern College. Fantastic. For one quarter. Uh, <laughs> Those lucky students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say this truly with, with humility. I've never had a plan in my life. I've uh, God has opened doors for me, and I've gone through them. After I retired from Cargill, I was at a navigator meeting in Colorado Springs, and a guy from the commission made a presentation that said, we're looking for actually several hundred people to go and live in the former Soviet Union for a year. And um, I looked at my wife, and we both agreed that uh, there was no reason for us not to go. Mm -hmm. And so um, we signed up and went and lived in a 
city south of Kiev named Bela Sarkov, which translates White Church. The city was founded in 1300. And we lived there for a year and um, probably got to meet and befriend and, uh, and be invigorated by, by 100 people. So when we left, we said, uh, we're coming back. And they said, yeah, that's what all Americans say. Um, but we said, no, we'll be back next year. So I didn't go this past April because of the virus, but I had been the previous 25 years. And uh, God willing, when uh, flying becomes reasonable, I'll go back again. Mm -hmm. So when you think of your 25 years, which is unheard of, I mean, very few people return to the mission field to the same place 25 years in a row, you do have a truly remarkable story, which I would love for you to share with our listeners, because I know we've got business at hand I want to get to. But I also want, if you wouldn't mind talking about when you said that you were going to play the Jesus film in your apartment, and that oh. the children showed up, and this one child showed up that you just didn't recognize from the building. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I might have to push the tear button. That's okay. Uh, uh, me too. <laughs> but <clears throat> we had a curriculum, and... Uh, I think there were 50 Christian organizations that formed the commission, and uh, they appointed a committee, and they wrote a 200-page uh, book. And um, But everybody had a different schedule, and we got to Bella Circus and were told by the superintendent of school we couldn't go in the public schools. And that, that, was, that was our whole purpose, was mm -hmm. to go in the public school and, and uh, teach... Uh, Morals and ethics was was our charge. Well, we we I, I'm convinced today, Bill, that uh, any of us could go live in any foreign country if we show ourselves humble, live in a uh, uh, average type environment, and uh, and God will open doors for you to find. But anyhow, we'd been there half the year and it had some success, remarkable success. Uh, superintendent of schools, I was the leader of 12 people. I was 65 years old. And the leader of, of the superintendent said, you can't come in the school. But uh, a couple of weeks later, a person called me and said, uh, the president of the local university would like to meet you. So I went, and um, he and I were about the same age. He, he was steeped, his whole background in communism, I was steeped my whole background in capitalism. But as we got to know each other, he said, would you consider coming and teaching economics at this university? And and I could have said, I, I'm sorry, sir, I came to teach morals and ethics and Christian principles, but I didn't. I grabbed the opportunity, and by the end of the year, um, we were into that university with a Bible study among professors and um and, and people heard of us, and so even though we couldn't immediately go into schools, we, we found new opportunities. Ter My son, Kerry, and his wife, Susan, came to visit us mid-year, and they brought us a copy of the Jesus film, uh, Campus Crusade's uh, program on the life, uh, film on the life of Jesus. And so um, we put a... Um, a sheet of paper in the elevator. We were living on the eighth floor of a very typical communist-built apartment house. We put a sheet of paper in the elevator saying, next week we're going to show a colored video in our flat 
of the life of Jesus, we can accommodate 20 people. Sign up uh, if you'd like to come. Well, there's a woman who worked the building as a janitor, and her job every day was to scoop up all the trash that would come down a common chute into the basement, scoop it into five-gallon cans and put it outside for the trucks to pick up. Probably the worst job you can think of in the entire Soviet Union. And and people told us she was very shy, she'd been beaten by a drunken husband, but she was similar size of my wife, and so Margot had extra sweaters, and she would never turn down uh, leftover bread or food or anything of value. Gradually, we got to be able to say to her, good morning, Tanya, Dobri Dan, Tanya, and she would look up and say, Dobri Dan to us. Well... When we hung up the sheet to show this Jesus film, uh, at 7 o'clock at night, doorbell rings, and here is a 19-year-old girl, dressed to the nines, uh, looking it up with big eyes, and we said, hello, hello. Uh, and she said, uh, my name is Natasha. And we said, you've come for the film. And she said, yes. We had translators, uh, boy and girl translators. And we said, Natasha, we've lived in this uh, building now for six months. We know every person in the building. We haven't met you. Uh, you don't live in the building. No, I don't. Where do you live? But one kilometer away. So we didn't grill her. We said, come in, come in. Uh, and she was the first one to arrive. And 19 more arrived, and they watched the film. Uh, she sat there, wrapped at seeing in color, spoken in Russian, uh, the story of the life of Jesus. So at the end, we said, Natasha, we have two young young girls, women, on our team. They have a little girl Bible study that meets on Saturday. Would you be interested in coming? And she said, oh, I will. They'll, they'll come pick you up and take you. Give us your, your address. So they would come two, three weeks later and say, oh, this wonderful little girl, she's so attentive and so eager to learn. Well, finally the light turned on. She's Tanya's daughter. Wow. Tanya, too shy to uh, come herself, thinking I'm, I'm the janitor. It would be inappropriate for me to go to their flat, but I want my little girl to learn about Jesus. We, it became <clears throat> life lifetime relationship with us. I could tell you the one-hour version, but today Natasha has a 10-year-old girl of her own. Wow. And, uh, and, and a, a good, hard-working husband and her... Ten-year-old, well, we sent Natasha to Svetlana, who was an English teacher, and she stuck with her because we were only there annually for a couple of weeks. Svetlana became her aunt and uh, guided her and directed her. So now we see third generation. Tanya is dead, but Natasha is 30-ish, and Eve, her little daughter, uh, since we lived there for a year and we've been back, 25 years, the town is 300,000 people, but we know everybody in town. <laughs> yeah. We know the music teacher who right. has, owns the music school, and Eve has taken music lessons there, and so... And you sent Eve to the music school, didn't you? You, you helped her with lessons and all that. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, of and, course. And yep. English lessons and music lessons, and yeah. helped her get a, a real advantage yeah. in life. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. We'll take a little break. Um, Carrie Humphrey Sr. is my guest. 
Words of the wise, and you're not going to get wiser words than these. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have Carrie Humphreys, Sr. with me in the studio. We're talking about words of the wise. Carrie has been a follower of Jesus for decades and decades and decades. And you have uh, a really wonderful um, idea that I want to talk to you about. But I also, before you tell the idea, I want you to tell our audience what you and your wife did when you returned from uh, your mission trip of one year in, in Ukraine. When we came back from Ukraine, um, Margo and I had both grown up in a um, same denomination church, married in the same denomination, and then then we took about a 10-year vacation and had no church involvement. Uh, Then Cargill moved us to Memphis, and we joined a church in Memphis, uh, not really looking for a church, but looking for a good boys' school, and they, they had a excellent boys school we joined the church and several people came alongside of us at the age of 30 and led us to Christ Mm. changed our lives changed our direction we moved from Memphis to New York back to Minneapolis uh, joined a local church in Edina switched to another church in Edina and we were active uh, on on the elder boards and uh, teaching Sunday school and uh, and then we had a one-year respite uh, living in Ukraine. When we came back, we didn't have a particular plan, but we said, let's look for more of an inner city church with no motive, no intention other than to broaden our experience. We went and became members of Pilgrim Baptist Church and stayed there for almost 15 years and then uh, and taught Sunday school there and made friends with the uh, Dozens of people, and we're still friends with many of them today. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, we moved to a Minneapolis church, North Minneapolis Church, uh, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, and we've been there for 10 years. And I'm still teaching Sunday school, and in the last three months, we've been teaching it via conference call. Uh, A a lifetime experience, and we're so thankful that we did that because we both grew up born during Jim Crow segregation in the South, and I went to the University of Virginia, founded by Thomas Jefferson, uh, which was totally segregated uh, when I graduated in 1954. Uh, So different experience for us, but it it brings me to recommend it. I haven't been been, uh, considered, considered it to be my plan to get people to go to an African American church, but uh, I, I I now have a, a, a reason to recommend that there be a two way street. That some people from white churches go to an African American church, and some people f- from African American churches try going to a white church. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't make a lifetime commitment. I we didn't ourselves, but uh, but we've been doing it now for twenty five years, and. Uh, we're not likely to change. Mm-hmm. So the idea, Carrie, is with so much divide in our country and so much racial tension, and I've been hearing about racial reconciliation since high school, 
But the real question is, what is anyone doing about it except talking about it? Whereas you and Margot, your wife, you joined an all-black church and you invested in that church and you taught Sunday school. And, you know, on any given Saturday night at your house, you might have five African-American couples over for dinner. Yeah. So you talk about racial <clears throat> reconciliation. There's, there's a plan. It's a great question. And what I envision in my plan is that... Uh, that we get black and white churches, pastors, ministers, and priests to recommend that um, some members of their church try attending, joining with a three-year commitment, and and seeing what they discover. I put down on my one-sheet plan, I'd like to see 100,000 people, black and white, make a three-year commitment to join and participate in a church of different color. I say that the plan is unique and it requires no funding, not one nickel, no government approval, not even a majority vote, just open-minded Christian individuals led by God's sovereignty. Obviously now, the approval of church priests, pastors, ministers can advance this plan where it becomes a movement instead of a clever idea. But your point, Bill, uh, it's time has come. I I think Martin Luther King was quoted as saying 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in in the United States. And uh, I understand that. But but I think racial reconciliation, uh, goodness sakes, we are all God's children, why shouldn't we be racially reconciling while we worship together and break bread together? Mm-hmm. Now, Carrie, you uh, talked about uh, some of the, the positives that have been uh, the outcome of you and Margot being in an uh, African-American church for 25 years. Can I share some of these? Please. How about some of the new friendships you've made? They've been spectacular, haven't they? They've been absolutely spectacular. I, I won't name people but people will know whom I'm talking about. Seven, eight years ago, uh, a voice on telephone said, Hi, Carrie, my name is Selwyn Vickers. I'm moving to Minneapolis. Joe Smith, I can't remember the name, said, If I called you, you could recommend a church for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I say to myself, I know Joe knows I go to an African-American church. So I say to this voice on the phone, Are you African-American? And he says... I have been since I was born. <laughs> and and so I said, What's, what brings you to Minneapolis? And he said, well, the University of Minnesota has hired me as um, uh, chief of surgery. He's going to superintend 80 surgeons. At the uh, University of Minnesota. At Medical the University School. of Minnesota. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think uh, one of the 80 was, was uh, African-American at the time. But some Asians, some Indians, but still predominantly... Uh, a group of white people, they hired him as um, chief of surgery. And he was here six or seven years, came from the University of Alabama, a godly man. He he could preach if you needed a preacher. He, know, he knows the scripture, and he's a family man with uh, godly children. And now he's a lifelong friend of yours. He's a lifelong friend of mine, and after seven years here, the University of Alabama hired him back as dean of their whole medical system. I understand that's a good job. Yeah, and, yeah. and there are others, others whose names uh, 
Minneapolitans would know. Mm -hmm. But uh, others whom you wouldn't know, who have been uh, zealous attenders of our my Friday morning Bible study. And uh, and how much has it helped expand your understanding? I mean, y- you have uh, so many friends and you have so many people that, that come to you for counsel and wisdom and Bible study, but you've got a whole new group of men and women that have come into your presence that you've had a chance to um, just expand your own understanding of what's going on in their world. Yeah, I, I would say we, we are blessed... We are blessed to know uh, Ukrainians, and we are blessed to know African Americans. And we we knew some African Americans long before we did this. And as you know, I had a long-time relationship with a guy named Ted Jefferson, who was an ex-offender who had actually killed another man uh, in a drunken brawl, who we became locked at the hip. Uh, and he had become a born-again Christian and, and actually spoke in my... He died at church and gave an altar call, and my son, Kerry, came forward when he was 15 or 16 years old. But but I would say what I've learned is I don't see any difference. I, I don't like the expression colorblind, but I don't see any difference in the needs of my white friends and my African-American friends. We all want essentially the same thing. We want our children to grow up with opportunity. We want them to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God and to see their children. And uh, and I've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And uh, I can't, I, there are about 30 of us right now. And I can't say that every single one of those are walking with the Lord to the extent that I would like to see. But uh, we love them and we are examples for them. And we are examples for the people that we meet in our church. And they are examples for us. And we we learn from them as much as they learn from us. So, Carrie, if we think about this, it's really maybe one person per family from every three churches in the U.S. So that's a million Christians in a different color church. Yes. And it requires no permission, uh, no funding, no... Uh, you just pick up and say, I'm going to go to a different church of a different color, and I'm going to set up yes. for three yes. years, and I'm going to get involved in this community. I'm going to get to know people. Yes. I'm going to hear their stories. <clears throat> When I, when I first went to Pilgrim, uh, a woman uh, came to me, uh, very friendly, with a big smile, and said, uh, Brother Kerry, could I ask you a personal question? And uh, I say, Carmita, people, some people in town will know who it is. Carmita, sure you can ask me a question. She said, how come you're here? And I said, Carmita, I read in Revelation that in heaven they're going to be all races, all creeds, all colors. I'm just practicing for what it's going to be like in heaven. <laughs> she said, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah. Uh, and you had some opposition when you first started, yeah, and now yeah, those have yeah. all come around one, as well. One or, one or two people have, uh, and, and, and there's still one or two people that are uncomfortable around me. Sure. Uh, if I'm sitting in the pew and there's a choice of sitting, they might sit in the pew behind me. Or but... Um, but that's probably true in my Adina church also, that yeah. uh, there were people that, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, and we never, uh, God never has a slow down, does he? I mean, no. I don't think we've told our listening audience your age, but um, you go ahead. Yeah. If you'd like to share your age. Oh, oh, I, I, I miss my, my hearing. 
Yeah, I'm closer to 91 than 90. I'll be 91 in uh, October. October the 17th. And, yeah. uh, and oddly, I have my oldest granddaughter was born on my birthday, and I have a daughter-in-law who was born on my birthday. Mm-hmm. So we have three people to celebrate the same, same day. So somebody said a long time ago, clever expression, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> but I count my blessings. And uh, God has dealt with me very gently. My wife is is in reasonable health. She is blind, but uh, uh, she is blind, but she can see the Lord very clearly, for which we are thankful. Yeah, and she spent her whole life uh, studying and memorizing Scripture, so yeah. it's all in her heart right now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a great time to be with you, and I am profoundly uh, grateful for the way you have shaped my life and the impact you've had on me and the way you have loved me. And I, uh, I send you a, a card on Father's Day because... I know you do. Yeah. I know you do. And, uh, and, and Bill, this plan has only been in my mind six weeks. And uh, I, I was, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years. It never occurred to me to encourage other people to do what I'm doing. Right. Uh, but all of a sudden, pandemic and the... The rioting, uh, it, the light just turned on. That uh, we're talking about racial, racial reconciliation. What better opportunity than for people to become praying, sharing members of a church of an opposite color? Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing this vision at age almost ninety-one. This is uh, inspiring to me. And I love this, and I love you, and I just am so grateful that you could be with me here today in the studio. Thank you so very much, Bill. You're a special person in our family and in our hearts. Thank you so much. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. You know that means time to ring the bell. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.